All right, good to see you all this afternoon. I, I have sort of the un, unenviable position of this second afternoon slot when everyone's tired and I've had a, we've had a lot of good information today. Uh, I also feel like this is a shorter slot than, uh, than some of the slots, so I'm going to try to get through this material quickly and have an opportunity for, uh, for some discussion. Let's see, we're shooting for 4.30, good, all right. So uh, as a way to maybe wake, wake us all up a little bit, I want to I start with uh, an articulation of the central thesis that I'm going to seek to, uh, to develop during this time. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can open to Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to make our way uh, to Hebrews 12 in a little bit. Uh, but I want to start with a little bit of a, what, may, what may seem to be a, pr- a provocative statement that I'm going to develop and uh, and and then we'll work we'll work through the through the material during this hour. Here here's the statement. Here's here's the the central thesis that I want to unpack a little bit. I alluded to it just a bit yesterday afternoon, but I want to develop it even more uh, during during this session. And 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 here's here's the central thesis. What I'm going to suggest is that there are several problems that exist within dominant contemporary worship practice today that are actually very similar to the problems that existed in late medieval worship that the reformers addressed. Now that may seem to be a little odd. Certainly we're not facing the same sorts of issues as the reformers faced. Certainly things are not as bad as they were in the late Middle Ages, are they? Are they? Well, I want to suggest that they actually are. And so in order to do that, what I'd like to do is to first work through some of the issues that were uh, problematic in late medieval worship in the, uh, uh, into the 16th century that reformers like Luther and Zwingli and Calvin and Bootser and Cranmer and, and then in, in on into the 7th century were, were seeking to address. I want to work through some of those and, and, and see what those problems are and how the reformers addressed each of these problems. And then I want to show parallels to what uh, we're facing today in, in some aspects with contemporary worship. If you think about the Reformation, the, the, the causes of the Reformation beginning in the 16th century, and I would argue that continued through the, through the next couple hundred years, uh, were, were the, the causes for that were various. There were many different, obviously, theological issues that led to the Reformation. However, much of what the reformers addressed in responding to the late medieval church involved worship theology and worship practice. And in fact, we're gonna, what we're going to see is the, the, the reformers, the initial reformers, agreed in a lot of how they dealt with some of, those, uh, some of those problems, but they also, this is where they largely disagreed. I mean, all the reformers agreed on the sole laws. They all agreed on justification by faith alone. They all agreed on the, 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 the sola scriptura and sola gratia and these, sort, these sorts of things. Where they ended up differing largely had to do with worship theology and practice. The reason that we have different denominations today uh, to a large extent, had to do with worship. Now, we have to be careful when we think about, uh, about how the church develops, how theology and even worship practice develops during the Middle Ages, because there, there was a lot of good. There was a lot of good that developed in the early church, a lot of good things that happened during the Middle Ages, but it was, it was by all accounts from, from this side of the Reformation, from our perspective, uh, it, was, it was by all accounts a mixed bag. Right? There were good things mixed with bad things. There were errors mixed with positives. 
and and uh, many of the problems that uh, that the reformers were addressing by the 16th century uh, developed during this time, some earlier and some later. So, for instance. Uh, the doctrine of purgatory came around 593. Prayer to Mary and saints and angels came in the 7th century. Uh, other other problems, transubstantiation, confessing sins to a priest, came a little later in the 13th century. The development of the seven sacraments, which we're going to talk about just in a minute, came sort of in the late uh, 15th century. So these problems started to develop. And, of course, the Reformers are dealing with all of these things, but what I want to focus our attention on are four major errors within the realm of worship theology and practice that the Reformers addressed in the 16th and 17th centuries that resemble some of the things that I think we're seeing in some circles of contemporary worship today. So four four general categories. The first is what I'm going to call sacramentalism. One of the first significant errors in late medieval worship was this idea of sacramentalism, which I'm going to define in this way. Sacramentalism is attributing the efficacy of an act of worship to the actual act rather than to the inner working of the Holy Spirit or the faith of the worshiper. So it is, it is the acts of worship themselves in this error of sacramentalism that have a sort of magical efficacy for the worshiper. And if I just if I just do these acts of worship, then I get the grace. Uh, there's a Latin phrase that developed during the late medieval, medieval ages that the reformers objected to, and it's, it's the phrase ex opera operato, which means from the work worked. And the idea literally became that if the worshiper just does the stuff, just does the acts, I don't have to have my mind engaged. I don't have to understand what's going on, which became a problem in the late Middle Ages as people didn't understand Latin anymore. I really don't have to understand any of it, but just by being there, I get the gracious benefits from these acts of worship. That's, that's the error of, of sacramentalism. The idea that the acts of worship work automatically and independently from any faith of the worshiper. That's sacramentalism. And the reformers objected to this uh, uh, to to different, different degrees. The reformers argued that no, these works in and of themselves don't have any magical efficacy, but rather what is essential is the faith of the worshiper. These acts of worship are important, the reformers argued, but they're not magical in and of themselves. The worshiper has to come in faith. So, for instance, Martin Luther said that the, the, the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, which is just, just from the Greek word thanksgiving, is, is a work which may be communicated to others, but the object of faith is, is essential for the strengthening and nourishing of each one's own faith. And this is what the reformers are going are gonna to argue. It's not, there's, no, there's no magic in, in the, the acts of worship. In fact, I don't know if you know this, but the phrase hocus pocus, right, that magical phrase, uh, it, 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 it came to be derided during this time. That, that phrase comes from the Latin phrase, which means this is my body, hoc es corpus meum. And Luther said, 
It's just a bunch of hocus pocus. Because, because the late medieval thought was when the priest says, hoc es corpus meum, all of a sudden, magically, the, the bread turns into the body of Christ, and just by these acts of worship, the, the magical grace, grace rubs off on the worshiper. And the, the, the reformers, to various degrees, uh, they, they differ a little bit in how they're addressing this, but they're all going to agree, it, no, it is the faith of the worshiper. These sacraments do not have any magical efficacy in and of themselves. Rather, it is the faith of the worshiper. Martin Bootser, one of his most significant works on this subject, uh, Ground and Reason, he called the, the late medieval view of the table mere superstition. He said that worship that is proper and pleasing to God must always be based on the sole clear word of God, and the worshiper must come in faith. The faith of the worshiper is essential for us to receive benefit from what we are doing. It doesn't just magically rub off on us. And so these reformers insisted that, that these acts of worship, which, by the way, they, 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 they continue to use the word sacrament. Sacrament is not a, it's not a bad word. It simply means, means something set apart for holy use. It simply refers to a visible sign of a spiritual reality. The problem wasn't viewing these acts of worship as set apart and holy. The problem was viewing them as magical in and of themselves, regardless of the faith of the worshipers. And so the former said, no, these, these are things that God has given us to work grace in our life, to strengthen our faith. As we talked about yesterday, there is, there is benefit for the believer in coming to worship and engaging in worship. This has a sanctifying influence on us, but only if the worshiper comes in genuine faith. It is only when a a person comes in sincere faith that the Holy Spirit will work through these acts of worship and sanctify the believer's heart. So this first error was, was addressed by these reformers and the, the necessity of faith was emphasized. A second problem that develops in the late Middle, Age, Middle Ages is something that we now refer to as sacerdotalism. This is the idea, this is the belief in the necessity of a human priest to approach God on behalf of others. The worshiper can't approach God in and of himself. Rather, a sanctified human priest is necessary as the mediator between the corrupt, sinful, dirty worshiper and, and God himself. And, and this is another error that develops gradually over time during the, during the Middle Ages. Uh, uh, over time, there, there begins to be a stronger and stronger distinction between the clergy and the laity, wherein the clergy don't trust the uneducated, illiterate masses to worship God on their own, but rather the clergy were entrusted with offering perfected worship on behalf of the people. In the 4th century, there was, a, there was a local council in Laodicea that illustrates this. This was a local council. It wasn't, it wasn't uniform across all the churches, but I think it illustrates what began to emerge during the Middle Ages and what sort of reached a climax by, by the, 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 the uh, 16th century, what the reformers are objecting against. And this council in 363 in Laodicea said this, specifically referring to singing. No others shall sing in the church save only the approved canonical singers. Right? And, and that, that develops. By, by, by the end of the Middle Ages, the people just aren't even singing anymore. It's just the approved clergy. 
and in fact they're not they're not involved in much of the worship one of the one of the earliest uh, uh, treatises that Martin Luther uh, composes shortly after uh, um, his his conversion and the beginning of the Reformation was a book called the Babylonian Captivity of the Church and he's using that as a metaphor he says the church is under captivity and and specifically these captivities had to do with the Lord's Supper uh, one of them was the idea of transubstantiation, which all the reformers uh, rejected. One of the ideas was viewing the mass as a re-sacrificing of Christ, which all of the reformers uh, uh, rejected. And the other one, which relates to this idea of sacerdotalism, was withholding the cup from the laity. Uh, it was very common by the end of the Middle Ages that the people really didn't very often at all participate in the Lord's Supper. The priests would take the bread and take the take the wine. The people would just watch. Maybe once a year on Easter, the people would be allowed to participate. And this differed from church to church. It wasn't uniform. But even when they were allowed to participate, the priest would place the bread in the mouth of the worshiper. And they would withhold the cup from the laity because they didn't want any of Jesus' blood to sprinkle on the beard of, of this unwashed layperson, right? And so Luther and the other reformers were saying, no, 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 no. Jesus said, drink, uh, all of you drink of it. And that, that if you read the, the text in the New Testament, you know, the, the, the Roman Catholic scholars were saying, no, what it means is drink all of it. Because, you know, which is why, you know, you get, you get problem with alcoholism among priests, right? But Luther shows exegetically and grammatically, no, 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 the all refers to y'all. You all drink of it. And he's arguing there, 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 there's a problem here with withholding these things from the laity. And, and, and the issue with sacerdotalism by the end of Middle Ages is that the quality of worship became measured by the excellence of the, the musical performance and the, the aesthetic beauty of the, of the liturgy. And, and listen, what, there, there was a lot of beautiful art and liturgy produced during this time, to be sure, but it resulted in worship becoming mostly what the priests did up in the chancel, which, by the way, in some cases eventually became, became separated by high rails or even screens. So the worshipers would sit out in the nave and just kind of see shadows of what is going on up there. And the people would be largely spectators, just watching the worship as it takes place up in the the chancel. Of course, this clergy-laity separation was only exacerbated by the continued use of Latin when eventually people didn't even understand what was, what was going on. And so by the end of the 14th century, members of the congregation, as I mentioned, rarely participated in the Lord's Supper, rarely participated. They didn't sing. One of the great Reformation recoveries was let the people sing. Let's put the worship in the language of the people so that the people can participate, so that the people can sing. Even even a, a, a recent Roman Catholic liturgical scholar notes, quote, the people were devout and they came to worship, but even when they were present at worship, it was still clerical worship. The people were not much more than spectators. This resulted largely from the strangeness of the language, which was and remained Latin. The people had become dumb. The people had become mere spectators of worship performed by others on their behalf in the front. And this is exactly what the reformers criticized. Luther, in the preface to his German liturgy, the, the liturgy that he then that he put in the language of the people, he said, the majority just stands there and gapes, hoping to see something new. That was, that was what he observed to be characteristic of worship uh, in the late Middle, medieval ages. 
And the reformers countered this mentality by insisting, as I mentioned a moment ago, that each member of the congregation ought to be an active participant in worship. This is worship of the people. Our our word liturgy comes from a compound word, which means the work of the people. The work of the people in common. This is Worship is not the work of clergy and the people are mere spectators. No, worship is the work of the people. Every aspect of worship, including praying and singing and the Lord's Supper, hearing the word, all of it needs to be, needs to be uh, welcoming to the entire congregation. And in particular with singing. Uh, uh, Luther was well known for encouraging congregational singing. And in the preface to, to one of his liturgies, he said, I wish we had as many songs as possible in the vernacular which the people could sing. For who doubts that originally all the people sang, which now only the choir sings or responds to what the bishop is consecrating. Let all the people sing. So sacramentalism, the idea that there's a sort of magical efficacy in the acts of worship without the faith of the worshiper. Sacerdotalism, the idea that really it's it's the priests up front who are doing the perfected worship and the people become mere spectators. Third, this, this leads to a sort of preoccupation with a sensory experience in worship. Right, the people the people don't necessarily understand what's going on, except maybe the educated people in the in the in the college university towns, but the average person doesn't understand. They're not participating. And so they're they're and and they see sort of a magical efficacy in what's going on. And so this leads to a real a real preoccupation with all of the splendor and the glory of what's happening in in these corporate worship services. And this, this was communicated in things like uh, the church architecture. Again, I mean, there's be- beautiful architecture produced during this period. But it deliberately emphasized a sort of sensory experience. Church architecture, in some cases, was designed through the, the use of windows and natural light to keep the nave where the people sit dark and the chancel where the perfected worship is taking place light. And again, it, it sort of re-emphasized this distinction and separation between the clergy and the laity, but it also led the people to get caught up in simply the beauty of what's going on, not really seeing any, any theological significance or purpose in it. Liturgy included rich vestments and processions and other elaborate ceremonies, bells and incense, all to create a sort of mystical experience of the senses that the people then came to interpret to be the presence of God or to have this sort of gracious efficacy in the corporate worship experience. Well, the reformers uh, responded to this as well. And this, is, this may be the, the, the way in which the various reformers responded to this differed by degree. But all of them agreed that the visible, ceremonial, aesthetic sort of, uh, uh, of uh, physical sort of sensory things in worship were not the essence and core of what is happening in worship. Even someone like Martin Luther, who who perhaps made the least revisions when it came to these sorts of ceremonies and visual representations in worship, even Luther said these things are adiaphora. They're, they're indifferent, meaning they don't, they don't actually have a, 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 an effect of grace, certainly not a saving grace, 
upon upon the worshiper. In fact, in that Babylonian captivity of the church, which again was was one of his earliest writings, the interesting thing about Luther is he sort of thinks out loud over time and sort of develops his thinking and his thinking evolves. I think he, he, he changes a little bit later in his life. But early on in the Babylonian captivity of the church, he says, we must be particularly careful to put aside whatever has been added to its original simple institution by the, ze- by the zeal and devotion of men. We need to be careful about adding a lot of extra stuff, ceremonies and rituals and, and outward sort of sensory kinds of things that are not in the word of God. He even lists them, things like vestments, ornaments, chants, prayers, organs, candles, and the whole pageantry of outward things. He says a little later in a a treatise called On the Councils and the Church, he says, besides these external signs and holy possessions, the church has other externals that do not sanctify it either in body and soul, nor were they instituted or commanded by God. These things have no more than their natural effects. Now, again, later he, he, he softens this a bit, and Luther ends up saying, okay, if they're adiaphora, then you can take them or leave them. If you want to keep doing these things, they're indifferent, but you can keep doing them, doing, them, doing them if you want. If you want to get rid of them, you can get rid of them. Other reformers, then, though, argued that if these things are adiaphora, in other words, they're not commanded by Scripture, and therefore they're indifferent in terms of their, of their, of, of their gracious effects, then we should get rid of them. If the Bible doesn't command them, then they should be not part of our worship. So, for instance, Ulrich Zwingli was committed to church practice being regulated by Scripture alone, leading him to to advocate for much more radical reforms than, than Luther did. He insisted that worship practices must have explicit biblical warrant. And so he denounced things like images and other ceremonial adornments. And even for Zwingli, he, 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 he did not allow even music in corporate worship. He didn't see, he didn't see a New Testament uh, um, defense of music. He tended to spiritualize Colossians 3 and Ephesians 5. And he said, he said unless I find New Testament warrant for these practices... I'm not going to do these things. Martin Bootser uh, was very similar. He rejected what he considered ceremonies of human origin, uh, things like vestments and, and, and these outward sort of physical sensory sorts of things. He insisted that church leaders have no right to invent new forms or to enrich existing forms with innovations because he said those would hide or replace the basically biblical acts and signs of worship. Uh, Calvin was very similar. His, his central goal was to return to simple worship practices of the church following biblical prescription. He said this, A part of the reverence that is paid to God consists simply in worshiping him as he has commanded, mingling no inventions of our own. And in particular, he directed attention specifically to the second commandment, that he defined uh, in this way. He said, lawful worship, that is spiritual worship established by God himself, should lead us to reject any mode of worship that is not sanctioned by the command of God. 
So in other words, we need to get rid of all of these external sort of outward adornments and rituals and ceremonies because they are not commanded by God. They end up leading us to be preoccupied with this sort of sense experience and we miss the true center and core of what's happening in worship. So the the various reformers differed in how they dealt with this, but they all agreed the external ceremonies themselves are not the core of what worship is. There's always a danger when we add these things that we end up looking at them instead of looking at Christ himself. This is exactly what uh, Calvin argued. He said, he said uh, these, these, these things uh, have as their purpose and their desire of raising pious minds to heaven, but they have become ab- abused to an entirely different purpose, and men contented with gazing upon them and worshiping them never once thought of Christ. We end, up, we end up getting caught up in the spectacle and losing sight of the one whom we say we are worshiping, Jesus Christ himself. All of these, these initial three, sacramentalism, sacerdotalism, and this sort of preoccupation with the sense experience, then lead forth to an individualization of piety. People would come to worship. They didn't necessarily what was, understand what was going on. They were, they were there simply to receive the, the, the efficacious benefits of the, of the worship that was being done on their behalf. There was a lack of involvement of the people. There was a lack of, cor- of, of, a, cor- of a sense of a corporate worship service. And rather, an individual worshiper would come and their only real benefit of a corporate worship service was the sacramental experience achieved by a sacerdotal system and by the splendor of this corporate setting. The service of the word, where the reading of Scripture and the preaching of Scripture was, was central, began to diminish in late medieval worship. The service of the table became a sort of mystical sacrament by, the, by which the worshipers were infused with grace as they observed the clergy offering what they believed to be a sacrifice on their behalf. One author says the decline in middle, medieval worship must first of all be laid to the clericalization and the related individualizing of the piety of the faithful a piety that grew apart from the liturgy. The liturgy was marked by an excess of feasts, by popular customs, and by details and superstitious practices that overlaid the hearts of the worshipers. The reformers, of course, objected, and they say, no, the piety of corporate worship, the benefit of corporate worship, as we saw yesterday from 1 Corinthians 14, is that it is corporate. It is the corporate body gathering together to participate together as the corporate body, all together participating in these means that God has given us in his word for the worship of our holy God to bring him ultimate glory and for the sanctification and edification and building up of the body of Christ. Now, you look at these four problems, and there there are others we can get into more specifics. I'm broad brushing a bit here. But you look at these four categorizations, sacramentalism, sacerdotalism, the preoccupation with the sense experience and the individual, individualization of, of piety, and, 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 and you might say, well, certainly we're not seeing these same things creep up in the church, are we? Well, let's work through these. What about sacramentalism? Well, I already alluded to this yesterday. 
much of contemporary worship, and, and, and again, this is, this is not a charge from the outside. This is how many contemporary worship authors themselves describe what is happening in corporate worship. Many contemporary worshipers consider music in particular to be an effectual means through which to experience God's presence. It, is a, it has become a sacrament. Uh, I'll, I'll quote again Dan Wilt that I quoted yesterday, who says, Contemporary worship is creating a place where God is expected to show up, to engage with his people, and to manifest his presence in beautiful ways. And the order there is significant. We, the worshipers, come and we use music as a means through which God shows up. And even the language of some of the, uh, some of the songs communicate this. I, I, I cited one yesterday. Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Come, flood this place and fill the atmosphere. This idea of inviting God to come down through, through the, the, the music that we are performing. Uh, praise and worship theology, which comes out of Pentecostalism, is explicit in this. That phrase, praise and worship, is, is a deliberate phrase. They, the uh, Authors like Judson Cornwall, one of the earlier Pentecostals who, who articulated things in this way, was very clear praise and worship are two different things. Praise is what we do largely through music in order to experience the presence of God and lead us to the place of worship. We start with praise in our music, and that leads us to experience the presence of God. So let me, let me read you what George Judson Cornwall said. He said, Praise begins by applauding God's power, but then it brings us close enough to God that worship can respond to God's presence. While the energy of praise is toward what God does, the energy of worship, which is where we're leading, is toward who God is. The first is concerned with God's performance. The second is occupied with his personage. The thrust of worship, therefore, is higher than the thrust of praise. So we start with praise, largely through music, and that will then lead us into the presence of God so that we can worship him. Uh, this, this change in a theology of worship led to an understanding of worship music that raised the significance of worship music to, to a place of significance that was, was, hadn't been true in, in much of traditional worship prior to this. Again, it can perhaps best be described by a book by Ruth Ann Ashton published in 1993 entitled God's Presence Through Music. That's the idea. God's presence is felt through music. It, it, it raises music, the, the, the idea of a musical style, to a level of significance. And I cited this yesterday that Sui Hong Lim and Lester Ruth in their book, Loving on Jesus, A Concise History of Contemporary Worship, what they describe as musical sacramentality, where music is now considered a primary means through which, and, and again, I'm quoting Lim and Ruth, God's presence can be encountered in worship. I mentioned this a little bit yesterday. Contemporary worship authors and, and, and clinicians and speakers argue that the experience of God's felt presence is achieved through what they call the emotional flow of a service, 
largely led by what they would call a worship leader. That's where the phrase worship leader comes from. This is the chief musician whose job it is to lead the people through music into the presence of God. And and, and the whole purpose then is to choose music and to group music together in such a way that we begin with high, energetic, upbeat praise which then eventually through, through the flow of the music and, and the, the feelings that are created through the music leads us into the presence of God to experience the presence of God and, and then to stay there in God's presence to worship him as long as possible. And that's, that's a little more intimate. It's a little, it's a little lower, lower key, but that's the goal. The worship leader's job is to bring people into the presence of God. Grouping songs in such a way that they flow together in this sense is essential to a good worship experience. Uh, David Blomgren in his 1978 uh, Song of the Lord, I, I think this is, this is a good uh, representative example of this kind of sacramental view of music. He says, the flow, he's talking about the way in which songs are ordered in order to create a certain emotional uh, progression. The flow should move continuously with no interruptions. The flow should move naturally using connections from the song's content, keys, and tempos. The flow should move toward the goal of a climactic experience of the true worshiper of God. And, 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 and he, he gives specific technical aspects of the music and the arrangement of the music to, to achieve this sort of thing. The content of the songs in sequence makes sense, having scriptural and thematic relation, relatedness. The key signatures are conducive to easy, unjarring, and smooth transition between songs. The tempos of the songs, usually faster to slower overall within the service, are grouped together, contributing to a growing sense of a closer encounter with God. The goal of music and the worship leader, and this is, this is the exact language that is sometimes used, is to usher worshipers into the presence of God to bring congregational worshipers into a corporate awareness of God's presence. And by the way, this, this sort of idea, I think, also explains, I don't know if you know this, but a lot of the millennial generation is becoming really, really interested in some ancient liturgical practices. Which, which, which corresponds exactly with this sort of idea. Uh, one author, I quoted him yesterday, I'll quote him again here, Zach Hicks, uh, is, is, uh, is one who sort of advocates both. And he, he describes his journey, he's, he's a, a, a young worship leader who, who describes his journey from what he, he describes as, as a kind of default charismatic thinking, and believing that God's presence was located solely in the surprising, unexpected, unplanned, goosebumps moments of worship, that's what we talked about yesterday, to later what he describes as falling in love with all things liturgical and historical, locating God's presence primarily in the sacraments. And and, and the reason he transitioned from one to the other, he said, I noticed that really it's the same thing. What, what, what I initially saw as, as the sacramental value of music, I'm now finding the sacramental value of ancient liturgical practices. In reality, his fundamental sacrament, sacramental theology never really changed. He just experienced one experiential theology of worship for another. 
And, and even further, this sort of perspective has developed into a sort of ex opera operato expectation, very similar to medieval worship. Listen to what Lim and Ruth say. And again, I want to emphasize, these are, these are men not critical of the movement. They're right inside the movement. In fact, uh, uh, Lester Ruth just came out with a, with a new book called Flow, in which he gives, he gives some suggestions about how to, how to bring in ancient liturgical practices into contemporary worship. He's, he's a fan of this, but he's a, he's a good historian, and I think he, he gives a, a, a very objective assessment of the underlying theology of the thing. And so Lim and Ruth say this. They say, as the idea of the sacramentality of praise developed, they're talking about within Pentecostalism, it usually picked up another quality that has characterized medieval understanding of the, of the Eucharist, a confidence in its instrumental effectiveness, that simply by doing this, it will have effects upon the worshipers. In other words, they say, the sacrament achieves what it symbolizes. When God's people praise, God will be present. The teachers of praise and worship are confident in this, this instrumental effectiveness for praise. Lim and Ruth observed that while that more, more recently explicit language of sacram, sacramentality of music has sort of uh, faded away among uh, more recent Pentecostal authors, they say what has not waned are the root sentiments behind this theology of sacramental praise, a desire to encounter the divine through music and a sense that when God is present, God is present in active power. And this is exactly what, for instance, Ruth Ann Ashton says in her book, God's Presence Through Music. She says, praise and worship is one of the simplest forms of entrance into the presence of God. It is through music that we enter God's presence. So there's a, there's a sacramental uh, sense in a lot of contemporary worship, particularly with music. Well, what about sacerdotalism? Well, in much of contemporary worship, congregational participation is minimized by the emphasis on perf performed music on the stage. That's where worship is taking place. Maybe I'm, I'm singing along. But really, it's happening up there. Again, Lim and Ruth, not, not, not being critical, just simply being objective observers. They say, perhaps a sure indication that associating God's presence with music has become widespread in contemporary worship is the expectation that the worship leader can facilitate the congregation's encounter with the divine by ushering them into the presence of God. So what's, what's important is what, is what the worship leader is doing. Uh, one worship uh, scholar tells an anecdote to this effect. He is relating the events at a pastor's conference in the late 1990s, and he notes that one pastor solicited applications for a musician's uh, a, a church musician position in his church, and he says he's looking for here's here's the job description. I'm looking for someone who can make God present through music. That was a literal job description for for a, a worship leader. Lim and Ruth note, regardless of which model was used in terms of the, the exact how things were done, the role and title of a congregation's chief musician had taken on a special significance, an almost priestly significance. It, it is up to the musicians to lead people into God's presence, and if people are not led into God's presence, it is, 
the worship leader's fault. The quality of worship has become measured, like medieval worship, by the excellence of the music and by the atmosphere that it creates. And this has resulted in worship becoming mostly what the priests do up on the stage, which is separated from the congregation by bright lights on the stage and where the people are sitting is darkened, just like the nave and the chancel in late medieval worship. The people have become mere spectators of the worship performed by the praise team on their behalf. And number three, preoccupation with with sense experience. Much of contemporary worship has become enamored by the visual and the spectacular in worship. For example, contemporary worship leader Bob Coughlin suggests this. Whether the tools are low-tech candles, incense and mini-bells, or high-tech video systems, intelligent lights and hazers, today's churchgoer accepts and even expects simultaneous sensory input. And he goes on to say that, that, that since God is, is completely other, we, we need to ask what part do our eyes play in the worship of God? How do we see God? And he, he, he does give some cautions about the, the, the potential problems with visual, including our, our tendency towards idolatry. But he insists, quote, when understood properly and used thoughtfully, visuals can serve to promote true worship of God. And then this leads to contemporary worship often then defining the essence of the experience. We talked a little bit about this yesterday. The essence of worship being defined in terms of tangible, physical, emotional experience. Feelings of spirituality are the aim and the goal. And, you know, this differs from church to church, but sometimes smoke and lights and video and drama and high volume and these sorts of things are all intended to create an atmosphere of worship. Technology in particular is critically important. Lim and Ruth note, I think, correctly, contemporary worship unplugged is not itself. There's a, there's a necessity for the technological aspect. Uh, one scholar, Monique Ingalls, who teaches at Baylor, she did a, a, a 10-year study from 2007 to 2017 of contemporary worship. And again, this is not somebody critical of contemporary worship. This is simply someone seeking to, to, to get a, an objective sense uh, uh, as to where things have come from and, and the way things currently are. And she notes the connection between the centrality of contemporary worship music and the desire of the worshiper to experience what she says is a personal encounter with God during congregational singing. There's a connection here. Often this expectation has been created by professionalized worship music, including worship concerts, she says, that have set the standard for what to expect in church. She says this, quote, understanding their worship concert activities as worship shapes what evangelicals expect of a worship experience in other settings. And all of this then results very similarly to medieval worship with an individualization of piety. Individual, authentic expression has become the mark of successful worship. The only real benefit to, to the corporate is, again, a sacramental experience that can be achieved only by the technologically driven, emotionally centered music and the power of the group dynamic to stimulate emotion. Now, 
There's a lot of parallels here. How do we assess this? What's going on here? And I think the benefit for us is the way that we, the way that the reformers diagnosed the issues with late medieval worship actually is the same diagnosis that we can use to assess some of the problems with contemporary worship today. There, there's a lot of factors that contribute to, bo- to these, these four areas, both in medieval worship and in contemporary worship. But I think there are two primary factors that lead to some of these issues that if we recognize them and recover the biblical solution, which we're going to see here in Hebrews 12 in just a moment, will go a long way to correcting problems that we see today in very similar ways to correcting the problems that the reformers saw in, in, uh, in the 16th century. Perhaps one central factor, there, there's a lot of things that led to some of the errors of medieval worship, but I think one central factor that eventually led to these four problems in medieval worship was that in many cases, church leadership over time derived their worship theology and practice primarily or even exclusively from Old Testament Israel. An an, an empire that existed as a union between the civil and the religious in, in the Middle Ages found a lot of support and guidelines more from the Old Testament than from the New. So the Old Testament increasingly became the pattern for medieval worship theology and practice, that the church essentially became, in medieval theology, the new Israel. For example, early theologians explicitly explained the the ecclesial hierarchy based on its parallels with Old Testament priests, the bishops, the priesthood, the priests, and the Levites, the deacons. Theologians used the Old Testament as the basis for priestly vestments. Well, Aaron wore priestly vestments, so our priests should wear priestly vestments and these sorts of things. The Old Testament became the basis for things like mandatory tithing, infant baptism, altars, sacrifices, richly adorned sanctuary, incense, processions, ceremonies, and things like this. They didn't find that in the New Testament. Where did they get it? From the Old Testament. As early as the 3rd century, for example, Tertullian described standing at God's altar for the participation of the sacrifice, and he proclaimed we ought to escort with the pomp of good works amid psalms and hymns unto God's altar to obtain for all uh, uh, good things from God. Now, he, he may have meant that in a metaphorical sense, like the New Testament uses these ideas in a metaphorical sense. But whether he meant it in a metaphorical sense or not, that kind of language unquestionably later became very literal for worship practice. This, This priority given to the Old Testament for worship without bringing in the new also accounts for the sacramentalism and the sacerdotalism and the, and the preoccupation of the sensory experience. Christ, Christians desired a worship that can be touched through human mediators. And this is exactly how the reformers diagnosed the problem with late medieval worship. For example, Calvin employed a particular arg- argument of emphasizing, this, is, this, will, this will be interesting particularly to... to to, to this group. Calvin, okay, think about who we're talking about here, emphasized the discontinuity 
between the Old Testament worship and the New Testament worship when he criticized a lot of late medieval worship. He said this, he said, what shall I say of ceremonies, the effect of which has been that we have almost buried Christ and returned to Jewish figures? He complained, a new Judaism as a substitute for that which God has distinctly abrogated has again been reared up by means of numerous puerile extravagancies collected from different quarters. He specifically criticized the priesthood. He said, then as it were, uh, as if he, that is the priest, were some successor of Aaron, he pretends that he offers a sacrifice to expiate the sins of the people. The reformers specifically said the problems that we're seeing in worship is because all of these are finding their exclusive warrant in the Old Testament without seeing how these things have been fulfilled in Christ and have therefore passed away. But there's another factor that led to some of these errors in theology and practice of worship. And that is that some theologians rightly understanding that Christian worship is participation with the worship of heaven. We're going to look at this in in Hebrews 12 in a moment. They rightly understood that, yet they failed to recognize that this reality is something that at this time must be accepted by faith. We don't yet experience it with the physical senses. When we worship in and through Christ, we are worshiping with the angels and saints of heaven, but we can't see that, we can't touch that, we simply have to to accept it by faith. And yet that's exactly that sort of worship that that, that may be felt, that may be touched, is exactly what developed in the late medieval ages. And so if we are truly worshiping in heaven, then we need to be able to experience that. We need to be able to feel that. We need to be able to see that. And again, the reformers objected. Calvin said the first thing we complain of here is that the people are entertained with showy ceremonies while not a word is said of their significance and truth. They're being caught up in the ceremony. They don't realize the spiritual significance behind what we're doing. So, so in other words, the two of, among other things, problems that led to these in medieval worshiper, worship practice and theology, was, was deriving theology and practice almost exclusively, exclusively from the Old Testament and expecting that if we are worshiping in heaven, then we should be able to feel and experience that with the senses, which is very similar to what we're seeing in contemporary worship. Contemporary praise and worship theology, likewise, is, 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 is uh, produced by a a theology of worship that that is based almost entirely in a typology of the Hebrew tabernacle or temple in the worship design of the service. This emotional flow that we talked about earlier is equated to coming into the temple with sort of upbeat praise and working our way to the Holy of Holies where God's God's presence is, which theologically is exactly right. The difference is it's defined in terms of the mood and emotions produced in the music. And likewise, as I mentioned uh, earlier, the idea of the worship leader ushering people into the presence of God is very similar to the late medieval problem of, of wanting to experience with the senses the worship of heaven in our earthly worship. And so what's the solution? And we're, we're running out of time here. Let me just breeze through this really quickly because I do want to uh, leave some, some time for questions. But I think the, the, the biblical solution that the reformers provided to these errors is the same solution that we need today. 
And the first is very simply to trust and rely on the sufficiency of Scripture. Sometimes this is called the regulative principle of worship, that the Word of God, particularly the New Testament, has given us the sufficient revelation for what God desires in the context of corporate worship. As later Puritan and separatist reformers in England would say, the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshiped according to the imaginations and devices of men or the suggestions of Satan, good thing, under any visible representation or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. We must trust the Holy Word of God, that that God has given us the acceptable way to worship, and so we're not going to add any external ceremonies, any rituals not prescribed in the New Testament. We're going to to aim for biblical simplicity. This was the goal of, of these reformers. But second, and this is where Hebrews 12 comes in, a proper application of New Testament revelation to a theology and practice of corporate worship. And much of our theology of worship absolutely is rooted in the Old Testament. But without taking the New Testament into account, we're led into some of these errors. Particularly in, as Calvin pointed out, the discontinuities that now exist between the worship of New Testament compared to the Old because of Christ. And the book of Hebrews in particular addresses these sorts of discontinuities. The author, of course, is writing to Jewish Christians who were experiencing intensified persecution and were perhaps being tempted to leave their Christian beliefs and return to Judaism. And in an attempt to persuade them otherwise, the author specifically uses Old Testament worship categories the sanctuary, sacrifice, priesthoods, all, priesthood altars, and these sorts of things, in order to argue and help these Christians understand the difference between worship in the Old Testament and the New, arguing that what you have now is better, it is superior to what you experienced in your Judaism. And in particular in chapter 12 here, we have this beautiful contrast He climaxes his argument with a vivid description of worship in the Old Testament compared with worship in the New. There's a lot of continuity, to be sure, but there are some important discontinuities. Look at verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched. And he's now going to use here the image of Sinai and all that represents in terms of Old Testament worship, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But, verse 22, you've not come to that. That's, that's Sinai. That's Old Testament worship. But now, because of Christ, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled to heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What's he saying here? In the Old Testament at Sinai, because of the sinfulness of people, because of the, uh, of, of the frailty of people, God had to condescend and come down into, onto the mountain, which was, which was a terrifying experience, but was a very physical experience. It was an experience Israel could see and taste and feel and touch. 
It was a terrifying experience, but perhaps, and this may be what some of these Jewish Christians were experiencing, and perhaps it, it, it seemed more real. We could, we could see the presence of God there on the mountain. Now the author is saying, we have something different. Because of Christ, you have not now come to the mountain that may be touched. No, you come to something better. Now, because you are in Christ, when we draw near to God through the sacrifice of Christ in the Spirit, we are actually drawing near to the presence of God in the real thing, in the real temple. That earthly temple, that earthly tabernacle, the priests, the altar, the sacrifices, those were shadows of the real thing. Now, because of your relationship to Christ, you can actually ascend in in Christ to the real thing. But it's not a mountain that may be touched. Why? Because we are in Christ spiritually. We are seated with Christ in the heavenlies, but we don't see that. We don't feel that. We don't experience that with any of our physical senses. We simply must believe it by faith. This is why he says, the author says in chapter 10, let us draw near to the presence of God through Christ with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Why is faith necessary? Chapter 11, verse 1, faith is the confidence of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The author is saying, you, you, when, you, when we come to worship through Christ, we are drawing near to the very presence of God. But, but that's not something we experience with our senses. Therefore, we must accept it simply by faith. And you see, this is what, this is what the, the late medieval worshipers were dissatisfied with. They wanted to feel it. They wanted to see it. They wanted to be able to touch it. And this, I think, to a large extent, is what many contemporary worshipers want today. We want to be able to feel the presence of God. We want to be able to tangibly, tangibly experience the presence of God. But, but we're not there yet physically. We're there spiritually, and that is better, the author of Hebrews, of Hebrews argues. But we simply have to accept it by faith. One day, faith will be sight. One day, we will be able to actually see the glory and presence of God. We will be able to hear and, and, and visibly and physically uh, experience that. But not yet. And this is why the reformers argued that worship should be regulated by Scripture. It should be simple. It should be spiritual. We, we must rely by faith on what God has given to us. And I think that same emphasis would go a long way to, to correcting problems that we're experiencing in our own churches. We simply come through the means that God has prescribed in his holy word for how Christians should gather, to hear the word, to sing the word, to pray the word, to act out the word in baptism and the Lord's Supper. Simply trust that when we do so, we, we are in the heavenly, the, 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 the heavenly temple on Mount Zion, but we accept that by faith. We, we believe that to be superior to what the Old Testament saints experienced. But that's going to lead to simplicity, some biblical simplicity in our worship. And if we are satisfied with biblical simplicity, then I believe that we are pleasing to the Lord and we'll, and we'll, we'll be able to avoid some of these errors that the Reformers rejected in late medieval worship and that perhaps we're seeing in some of our worship today. All right, just 12 minutes or so for some, some questions. What, uh, what, what questions popped into your mind dur during this discussion?
All right. We have one question over here from Dan Hill. I, I know that the main church growth model right now is taken from Calvary Chapel. You know, two, two video screens, a lot of praise and worship. I've seen that in Baptist church plants. Uh, I think the largest church in the U.S. now is Christ Church of the Valley in Phoenix, Arizona, and that's their model. And that is strictly, I mean, the lights are dim. I've seen it in conservative Baptist churches. I've seen it in all kinds of churches, and it seems to be the going model right now for churches. And it's strictly, it's almost totally the people are spectators. And I I just see that so often today. And it's uh, pitched as being very visitor-friendly. And it is in many ways, but I really wonder, you know, if it's not following exactly what you were saying about just that participation. So it's not so much a question, just a comment. Yeah, yeah. Lim, Lim and Ruth point this out that some of the early church growth guys looked to the Pentecostal praise and worship way of doing things, didn't necessarily adopt their Pentecostal theology, but said that's a great way to to energize the service and get people in. But yeah, I, I describe it this way: it's not it's not really congregational singing anymore. It's kind of congregational sing along, right? The, the the it's happening up on stage. Maybe if you know it, you can kind of sing. We're going to talk tomorrow about how to encourage congregational singing. I'm going to make this point: a lot of a lot of contemporary songs really are not objectively singable. If you know it, you can sing along. But if you don't know it, it's they're not easy to pick up. They're not they're not congregational by nature. They're dependent upon the the rehearsed band up front in order for for the, the music to take place. Yeah. See, back in back in the eighties, there were three three issues. There's uh, demon possession of Christians and slash spiritual warfare. There was contemporary Christian worship. And then there was a tongues issue. Those were the three big things that characterize a charismatic Pentecostal movement. And what happened was evangelical churches like the big size, the church growth on the, in, the, in these Pentecostal charismatic churches. So they went over and they adopted their views on spiritual warfare. And you could have, you, we had guys at, at Dallas Seminary, Jack Deere, Walt Bodine, and uh, Don, uh, Don Sanukian, and they became you know they flirted with vineyard and with with wimber and they all got they all got fired but that was mostly in the spiritual warfare area and then you had uh you had the contemporary christian worship and what was happening is it broke down the distinction between the cessationist churches the non-tongues people and the tongues people because once you adopt their view of spiritual warfare which is why tommy ice and i wrote the book on spiritual warfare once you adopted that and once you adopted contemporary Christian music, then the third domino fell very easily, which was you were just believing that there was some extra work of the Holy Spirit that you needed, and, and tongues may or may not follow, but that right. was the big deal. Right. Yep. Good. I kind of had a comment and a question. Um, comment being that uh, if you look at, you know, cinematography coming out of Hollywood these days, and you look at video games and and now with virtual reality and all, I mean, people are being absolutely bombarded with sensory experiences. I mean, you can't watch a movie anymore without the camera changing like every second and a half. I mean, it's just constant sensory 
bombardment. And I think that's another reason why, you know, this kind of, in my mind, kind of ties in with the emergent church stuff where people want to have an experience, right? The incense, the labyrinth, the, they want some sort of an experience, right? Um, given that, my question is, um, how, what do you suggest in terms of trying to overcome that? I mean, I know you talked about biblical simplicity of things, and I, I'm, I'm with you on that, but you know, I'm up there and I'm preaching the word and I have a slideshow and I'm not trying to put on a performance. I'm trying to use the power of God's word to uh, help people grow in their lives. And so how do I overcome these people that have been just bombarded with sensory experiences? Yeah, I, mean, I think biblical, biblical simplicity is the key. Uh, and, and, and just being, I mean, you're, you, our awareness of this problem is going to help. And if we're going to use... You know, notice I'm, I'll, I'll put words on a screen, but I'm I'm not going to have like a lot of pictures. You know, now 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 it's very common when you put words on the screen, you have something like moving in the background too. You know, so I, I think there's there's perhaps benefit, although in in, in our in, in the corporate worship of my church, which we've just done away with all visual, just no visual at all. But there could be some teaching benefit of it. But when it is, it's words. Right, it's not, it's not, it's not pictures or moving, moving things because of this problem of this sort of preoccupation with the with the sense experience that is so dominant in our society. You're right, um, and again, I mean, this connects with what I talked about earlier. The medium is the message. The medium communicates or, or connects with and contributes to what is being communicated. And there's something different that's happening with visual media than with auditory. And I think there's a reason God has chosen to to emphasize the word um, instead of the visual because there's, there's different things happening there. So, again, I, I trust, let's, trust the simpli- let's trust the simplicity and sufficiency of the word of God. I think that's where we have to start. But then the difficult question is when you take people coming out of this culture that where every two or three seconds they've got to have something different, they're picking yeah. up their phone, they're looking at something different, they are so programmed and it's such a habit. Yeah. I won't use the word program. It is such a habit that they've gotten into that if they're not in an environment where they're getting that sensory stimulation every five seconds, they don't know how to sit still and concentrate anymore. So that presents, you know, I think there's that problem that I've thought about for years, don't know the answer. And the other one is that we have more and more people in our culture who just aren't educated enough to understand a lot of the four-syllable words that we use or three-syllable words that we use. And how do we teach? I've got a congregation like most of you who can understand a whole lot, but you have people who come in off the street, and they have, they have no idea. They've never heard a message anywhere close to what, what we're doing, right. and it's gobbledygook to them, and they're out the door and gone somewhere else and think we're just a bunch of weird old white people. I mean, we've got to do teaching. We've got to help people recognize the the issue. You know, yeah, it is. It is. It's definitely a challenge. Maybe one syllable words on and off. Yeah. <laughs> Just kidding. It's not. Yeah. Oh, I heard something. Is it on now? Yes, it is. Okay. Um, so as a seminary student, um, but also as someone who's 
uh, day job currently is in visual arts. Um, I uh, started in uh, feature film animation, and I'm now in games and interactive design. Uh, how would somebody come coming from this sort of creative role help strike the balance and uh, help to serve in the correct way? Um, trying to uh, use the skills that I have uh, in order to uh, serve and teach in the proper way. Yeah, Spe specifically in the church and in corporate worship? Specifically, yes. Yeah. But I, I guess a second part of that question would be, would it be a more uh, fitting role for um, maybe a, a youth ministry or or something of that manner? Well, I mean, if I my 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 answer maybe it's not uh, an easy answer, but um, you know, if if we're going to trust in, in biblical simplicity, and we're going to trust in the Word and words as that which God has prescribed, for me personally, the visual doesn't have a place in corporate worship or in in the communication of biblical truth at at, it, at its core. It might it, it, I'm not saying it's evil and bad. It has its values in other in other respects, but I would say not every gift, not every skill set, is necessarily to be used for the purpose of, of corporate worship or even even youth ministry. I mean, it was still God's truth, and we're still trying. In fact, it's maybe even more potentially dangerous because the youth are so caught up in the visual. I would I would almost you know intentionally go the opposite direction. Uh, so can it be used in the service of the Lord? Sure. But in you know from what we're talking about corporate worship and communication of God's truth, I would say let's stick with words, and maybe there's a place for visual in other places. But at least at least in my understanding right now, not not corporate worship and not in communicating biblical truth. Might there be a difference there between entertainment and edification? Yeah, right. I mean, yeah. Well, you know what occurred to me as you were just talking about that is that for six thousand years we've had a clear problem. Sin. And the solution has been a verbal message. And in the, but in the last 30 years, we want to redefine the problem, and the solution, the historic solution, is no longer a sufficient solution because now it has to be enhanced with all this visual and music and everything else so that it will get people's attention. So at its root, what's going on here is a denial of the sufficiency of Scripture. Like the, the danger is exactly what Martin Luther said. These, these, uh, these visual things are not evil, but the tendency is when they are present, our fixation is on them rather than on the truth. They're a distraction. That's, that's a, a distraction that's from a, the message. A perennial, a perennial problem, yeah. Okay. Dean. This is a billion-dollar industry you're talking about. How, how do you, can you speak a little on the CMA? Speak on the what? The CMA, Christian Music Association, how that's tied to all this? Uh, it's a billion-dollar industry. Yeah. <laughs> well, because it, it works. It puts people in the seats. It feels good. It's immediate. But I would say sanctification, Christian growth, Christian worship is not immediate. It's It's work. Uh, growth, growth in our knowledge and our relationship with the Lord is work, um, and and so I mean so it's 
you know, again, it, it might it might work, it might produce results, but they're they're not you know they're not consistent with what God has given us. So, yeah, I, that's probably not a good answer, but. <laughs> I think it goes back to sufficiency of Scripture. Is right. the Bible enough? Okay, well, thank you again, Scott, and um, time for a break, time for dinner, time to uh, uh, relax a little bit, stretch, get ready to come back tonight, and we will begin at 7.30. But what's going to happen at 6.30? Choir. Choir, all right. We hope several of you will come out and join the choir. Okay, let me close in prayer. Father, thank you for this time we've had and uh, causing us to think, to analyze what we do, why we do it and to understand more profoundly what worship is in Scripture as we come into your presence. Now, Father, we pray that we might have a refreshing time with the break and with dinner, uh, times of good conversation, good food, and, Father, bring us back together in three hours for another evening of worship. Thank you. In Christ's name, amen.